now be followed by our final message today by Mr. Curtis Wiley entitled Cornell versus Spiritual Perceptions. I hope I said that right. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today, as it always is. I have a little bit of a new method for my sermon today, so it might take me a few minutes to get adjusted. But it's wonderful to see everyone, as it always is, here on another beautiful Sabbath day. Uh, and as Owen mentioned, the title of my message today is Carnal versus Spiritual Perceptions. And last week, just a few days ago, we were here. And we were observing the Feast of Pentecost, and we reflected on the power that we have been given, and the tremendous blessing that we've been given, to be able to be given God's Spirit, and to grow in the nature and stature, and be transformed, as we heard in that first message, by that Spirit. And for me, personally, Pentecost is always a little bit special uh, on top of it already being God's holy day, because it was the 18th anniversary of whenever I was baptized, 18 years ago in 2004. And so as I was thinking about that day, and I was thinking a little bit about what Matt talked about in his message, about, you know, we go through life and we talk about how we've been given God's Spirit, how much of a blessing it is. But I think that we can sometimes, just through living in this world, take it for granted. And think that it's just always, well, we have God's Spirit, so we're always going to be led in the right direction. No matter what we do, no matter what we, you know, the, the behaviors we have, God's always going to lead us. And we really don't have any part in that. Because God's power through us is leading us. And so today, I would like us to just think a little bit about the idea of carnality, as we see so often in the Scriptures. The human flesh this world is full of carnality. And I entitled this message, Carnal versus Spiritual Perceptions, because even though we've been baptized, even though the Spirit has been given to us, it's still relevant to us today, because we have, excuse me if I'm getting interrupted by my, my shirt here, we have been given God's Spirit, but we still have, as we know from the Scriptures, that old man that wants to come out. We understand that we have to fight against that. And so we just went through a period, right, a period of time where we, we kept the Days of Unleavened Bread and before that the Passover. And we learned about reflecting on ourselves and, and examining ourselves. And then the Days of Unleavened Bread and putting sin out of our lives. And then that 50-day journey to Pentecost. And that memorial that has so much meaning for us as Christians through the Old Testament, uh, ultimately pointing, of course, to Christ and the Spirit that was given to us. It's so easy for us to, even though that season's over, to, to leave it and now start thinking about other things. And when we realize, we have to always be thinking about that. That's always relevant to us. The understanding of the tremendous blessing that we've been given. So I entitled this message today, as I mentioned, Carnal versus Spiritual Perceptions. The English word perception is defined in the English dictionary as the ability to see, hear, or become aware of something through the senses. And I don't typically read entire chapters of the Bible and messages just straight through, but I want to do that 
starting out with this message today in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. Let's go there real quick because Paul says something that I think really hits at the heart of what motivated me in this message. He says in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, and I, brethren, talking to the Corinthian church, when they first came to them in the Corinthian church, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech, my preaching, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He came to them in the power of the Spirit. Verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we know that this world is not short of the wisdom of men. In almost every facet of life, the wisdom of men can get us in trouble when we rely too much on it. Verse 6, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for they had known, for for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor heard, or nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things. Of God, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And we know that much of the world counts the words of God as foolishness. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That spirit that's in us has given us the mind of Christ. Today I would like to go back to a few stories in the Old Testament and look at some of ancient Israel's early history and how they so often had such a worldly perception of things instead of a spiritual perception of things. And I have two points as we look at these stories. And I'm just going to give them to you right now. The first one is, sometimes our solutions are wrong in life and don't work because we misidentify the problem or problems correctly. We use carnal perceptions. 
And we can apply this to normal part of our life. And we also, as you can imagine, we can apply this to our spiritual life, which is what I'm wanting us to do today. My second main point is to remember that sometimes our choices, desires, and inclinations are in contrast to God's when we are thinking in carnal terms, as Paul just went through. So, to do this, I want to just quickly review the last part of Israel's pre-monarchy period. You know, Israel, we read through, you know, you know, you know obviously the, the beginning books of the Bible, but starting in Joshua through the book that we call Judges, there's this period in Israel's history that was kind of a low point, and it was kind of self-inflicted, and unfortunately, we can look at a lot of periods of Israel's history where there, it, it could be considered a low point. But we know that when Israel entered into the Promised Land, under Joshua's leadership, we can read right after you know, the first five books of Moses, and then we get into the book of Joshua, uh, that Israel would now be governed for the next several hundred years or so, or several years, uh, through a series of individuals known as judges. As we know, we have a book in the Bible that's devoted to this period of time called Judges. And it's a great book. There's so many wonderful lessons that we could get from the, this book, and I encourage you to do so. But during this first era in Israel's history, in the era of Israel's history when they first came into the Promised Land, uh, there was no monarchy. There was no king. But Israel was instead organized into a confederacy of tribes. God had uh, instructed them to come into the Promised Land, and he kind of drew out territories where each tribe would be in. And periodically, because they had no king, there was no, like, strong central government yet. Uh, they were supposed to be being directly led by God. But periodically, they would have these individuals that God would raise up that we call judges or deliverers. And God would raise them up to lead the, you know, lead the people against their enemies. And so, unfortunately, though, as we read the book of Judges, most of the time these peoples would fail to heed the voice of these individuals that God raised up. Judges, the second chapter, for example, verse 16 and 17 says this. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And so as we read through this early period of Israel in the promised land, we see that this cycle repeats itself. And here's the cycle, essentially. Israel would fall into apostasy. They would fall away. They would depart from God's way. And then in response, the second part, the second step in the, the cycle, Israel would be chastised by God directly by Israel's enemies. They would fall away from God. God would allow their enemies to come in and defeat them. The third step in the cycle, they would repent. They would repent. The fourth step in the cycle, God would restore Israel through these deliverers or these judges. And then the fifth part, unfortunately, is step, step one. Repeat. The last verse of the book of Judges, we've all probably read this before, sums up so well this era in Israel's history. Judges 21 verse 25 says this. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what, did what was right in his own eyes. Unfortunately, when I say that this sums up this era of Israel's history, I don't think that's the only era of history we can apply that to. I think that is a familiar characterization to our own history that we live in today. So, in this context, right at the end of this judges period, we find Israel go to battle, or a series of battles, that they fight with their arch enemy, the Philistines. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. So during this time, you have this individual named Samuel that was born of a woman named Hannah that initially was barren, could not bear a child. She cried out to God and said that, God, if you give me a child, I will dedicate that child to, to you. But the leadership-wise for Israel during this time, here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, was the high priest, Eli, and his two corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And we all probably have read about them. We're not going to spend too much time on them. But we come to a story in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And so we have this story, and as soon as this happens, the very next verse, in verse 3, you have this question asked by Israel's elders. They essentially were like, how did we lose? What happened? Verse 3, they says, And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They came up with the solution. The elders thought, maybe this is it. We have the Ark of the Covenant. We can bring that into the battlefield and maybe we can summon God's presence that way. Verse 3 says the continuation after they asked the question why the Lord had defeated them against the Philistines. It says, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. And when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, when we read this story, it's interesting. Because, I mean, the Ark of the Covenant is clearly something that's established by God. It's a symbol of God's presence among them, a holy symbol. But there's a few things lacking in this story that's interesting to just to take note. Number one, not one time do we see any repentance from the Israelites. The elders never talk about repentance. There's no discussion about turning to God and asking Him for advice. There's no self-reflection on their behavior as a people. They simply thought their problem was the physical location of the Ark of the Covenant. And we see right after this, when they bring out the Ark of the Covenant, we see the response of everyone who witnesses this Ark rolling out to the battlefield. And verse 5, And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, when I read that text, to me, it sounds like this actually gave them confidence. 
and made them feel like, surely now we're going to win this battle. The Ark of the Covenant is in the midst of us in the battle. It gave them, unfortunately, though, as we know, a false sense of security. The shouting showed that they had a false sense of security in this plan of simply just not repenting, not self-reflecting, but just relocating the physical location of the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines, on the other hand, they also had a reaction to the Ark of the Covenant coming out to them. You see, they knew about the God of Israel. They probably thought the God of Israel was multiple because in their minds they're polytheists and that's what the text says. It says, you know, the gods of Israel. But they had heard about this God. They had heard about what Israel had been in Egypt and how the God of the Hebrews had struck down all of the Egyptians. And we see the reaction, and it makes them fight even harder. We see the reaction in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. We read, Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And verse 7 says, So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourself like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. And so this was the perception of the Philistines. And so verses 10 through 22 gives us the conclusion to this story. Did it work or didn't it work? Well, when we read it, we see that it was a miserable failure. This plan that the elders concocted did not work. Several things happened. Things go from bad to worse. And the worst possible scenario happened. The chief symbol of God's presence and the people's identity, that very ark, was stolen by the Philistines. They captured it. Including 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel that they slaughtered and the two sons of the high priest as well, Hophni and Phinehas, were also killed in the process. And they have this messenger individual that comes back to the camp, comes back to Eli and tells them how the battle went, that Israel lost, and that all of these things befell Israel. And we see that even the death of the high priest, Eli, took place as a result of what he heard, as verse 18 of chapter 4 says, as soon as he mentioned the Ark of the Covenant, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. And as a sign of this low point in Israel's history, Eli, he had a daughter-in-law. And this daughter-in-law was married to Phinehas, Phinehas, and she was pregnant. And the turmoil, this, I guess you would say trauma, I guess, so to speak, that happened as a result of this battle and their, their great defeat made her go into labor. And she had a son, and she named him Ichabod, which literally meant... The glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel. 
And so now you have the death of Eli and his sons that's going to usher in a time period for this other individual that I mentioned earlier named Samuel to come and to be the one who judges Israel as both a judge as well as a prophet of Israel. And so you see in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, we kind of skipped over a little bit of the story, and we'll come back to it here in just a little while. But what we learn is, is that Samuel rises up, and he kind of gets Israel straight to some extent. He gets them to put down their idolatry. He gets them to be you know, victorious and praise before them against the Philistines. But 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15 through 17, we read, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so things were somewhat okay. We know that the story goes, and I didn't get into that, the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant, and they have all of these curses placed upon them, and we all know, you know the boils and all of those things. And I skipped over that. And Israel becomes victorious. They get the, the Ark of the Covenant back. And somewhat, to some extent, Samuel kind of lays down. And he's a faithful individual, a faithful prophet of God, and a faithful judge. But there's just one problem. Much like Eli, he has two sons that aren't faithful like he is to God. He has two sons named Joel and Abijah. And Samuel's starting to get old in age. And those two sons, the scriptures say that they took bribes. They perverted justice, obviously, for some sort of monetary gain. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, when I talk about how the scripture and judges, the very last one, is very characteristic of the world that we live in today, I think this right here is very characteristic in the world we live in today. Unfortunately, it's such a familiar tale when we have leaders of our country, and other countries as well, who take bribes, pervert justice, and do all of those things. And in Israel's minds, the elders, the last thing they want is another, I guess you would say, Hophni and Phinehas, because the two sons of, of Samuel are essentially corrupt just like they were. And so because of this, the elders, knowing that Samuel was getting old in age, they come to him and they ask him a question. They request something. And we all know what it is in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. We hear that the elders of Israel, knowing that Samuel's getting old in age and that his sons do not follow after his way, they said, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They want a king. They want a king. The reasoning of the elders, and I'll get to this in a minute, is reasonable to an extent. It's reasonable to an extent. Number one, they say Samuel's old. His sons, they're clearly not qualified to do what he's done. We need someone that will be able to step in and take charge. But the second thing is interesting. They want conformity to what they know from the culture of the day. Give us a king like the other nations have. They want the same leadership style as the other nations. 
And Samuel, of course, as we know, he takes this as a personal rejection. But God informs him in verses 7 through 9 that it wasn't a rejection of Samuel, but rather it was a, a rejection of God himself. Verse 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 8 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of, up out of the land of Egypt, or out of Egypt, even to this day, which they have forsaken me, with which they have forsaken me, and served other gods, that they, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice, however... You shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. I like that last part, but unfortunately, as we read the story, you need to tell them the behavior of the king that shall rule over you. As we see the story, they don't follow that behavior. They have an eye for the physical instead of an eye for the heart. And so it's interesting that we hear that God says that they didn't reject you, Samuel, they rejected me. Because we know that in Deuteronomy, for example, if you were to read the 33rd chapter, verses 1 through 5, we see that God is called king, who has established his covenant over the people of Israel. And not only that, historians and scholars have actually identified the covenant language as found in the book of Exodus to be akin or similar to treaties between kings and their subjects. And if this is the case, then it would have meant that the people of Israel would have recognized upon entering that covenant with God that they were entering an agreement to look upon God as their king, as their leader. But in their minds, they wanted the physical. They wanted someone that would be there, that would go out to battle for them, that would make them feel safe. Because in their minds, obviously, God didn't do the job well enough. Now, I don't think that we can look at Israel per se and say that it was wrong to maybe want a king to be established over them. I don't think that God was judging them and saying, you want a king. I think it was more their attitude. We know Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter, verses 14 through 20, spells out that there would be a time that Israel would need a king or would put a king in place. And we all know that Judah, of course, as the prophecies came to be, where the scepter or the royal throne would belong to, that it predicted a king. And we know that ultimately that king is in line of Judah, and our ultimate king, of course, is Jesus Christ. But their attitude was the issue, their heart. They did not think that God's current plan of protection was security enough. And the motive was revealed in verse 8, or verse 20 of chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. No, but we want a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When you go back to Exodus, you go back to the scriptures that God talks about how he would lead them and he would go before them and he would fight the battles for them. And up until this time, and the history shows, that's exactly what God did when they were obedient to God and keeping the covenant. The problem with Israel was that they believed the problem was political. 
And the entire time, it was spiritual. Israel did not lose battles to the Philistines because they didn't have enough men, because they weren't strong enough. Israel lost battles with the Philistines because of their hearts. They were exactly what God said would happen to them, happened to them if they fell from his ways. So my first main point today, and I want to apply this to our lives, if we neglect to inspect our heart, we are putting ourselves at risk of misidentifying our problems. Sometimes our solutions are wrong and don't work because we do not recognize the problem correctly or the problems. And in this case, Israel, as I mentioned, thought the problem was political. They didn't have a king. They lost battles. In their minds, they didn't have the right formula. That's what they were thinking. We just don't have the right people in place. That's the issue. I've spoken on this before, but looking at that idea of locating physically the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield, it's kind of akin to this idea that I read in a book one time by a guy by the name of uh, uh, Dell Ralph Davis. He has a book called Looking on the Heart, and he calls, he has this term he calls rabbit foot theology. Maybe you guys remember their old rabbit foot. I remember when I was a kid, they had these rabbit foots. Right? You could buy them at like little keychains and stuff. And I just had one, just I didn't even know what it was about. I just thought that's what people had. Kids had it. You know, kids like silly things, right? Other kids have it and they want it. But as I got older, I realized it was a good luck charm. And so what Davis is saying on rabbit foot theology is he's talking about rabbit foot theology where we have something and that was the key. And in this instance, the Ark of the Covenant. Although it was established by God, they were using it in an improper way. They were thinking that just all we have to do is just pull it out here and, and put it out there, and that's, that, that's just going to cure everything. Rabbit foot theology, a good, look char- a good luck charm. But remember, as I mentioned, what was missing. No repentance, no mention of seeking God in prayer, no self-reflection, in fact, what we find at the end of the story, back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, after all of this happened, Eli's dead, his two sons are dead. The Philistine story is over for, for right now. And Samuel rises up and he says this in Samuel in chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you. Wow. And prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bells and the asterisks and serve the Lord only. It's amazing, isn't it? They were literally not only going after other gods among them in the promised land as they were specifically told not to, breaking the covenants, but they were also making an idol out of the Ark of the Covenant itself. Never was there any mention about being holy. None of it. And all of us, I think, have maybe misidentified problems in our life. The entire time, it was all about their, spirit, their hearts. Can we relate to this? 
in our own lives, you know, examples that maybe we've went through. Obviously, we might not experience something quite like this. This is a principle, though. Several years ago, and I thought of this analogy because right now it's the dead. It's not the summer heat that we're getting ready to get. We all know that. But it's starting to get warm out there. And every year, when it gets warm, we get those insects called flies that start really accumulating. And several years ago, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right now battling flies at my house. Maybe you are as well. But I have a story about flies several years ago, probably five or six years ago. Me and my wife in our house, we were having this fly problem. I mean, every time we turned around, every time we came home, it seemed like the flies were multiplying. And we didn't know what was going on. We thought maybe there was like an opening somewhere outside and the air conditioner, we had an exterminator come out. And he sprayed inside and outside. But no matter what we did, the flies continued to increase. And it was kind of embarrassing. You know, I mean, you're at, you're at, it's at the point where not only was it gross, but like I didn't even want people to come over. Because there would be, you know, flies don't, they don't live forever. And they get weak and they die. And there's flies on the floor. And we'd clean it up. And the next day, we'd have all these other flies. And we were like, what is going on? It was very frustrating. So we call the exterminator back out. He sprays again. Still doesn't do anything. Eventually, my wife discovered the problem. The entire time, we thought it was an opening from outside. We thought maybe we just need to spray our house. Somehow, in the process of grocery shopping, several weeks before, a bag of potatoes was left in our garage, and we didn't see it. It was kind of covered up in a sack. And as you can imagine, these potatoes were rotting, bringing thousands, I say thousands, I mean maybe I mean hundreds, maybe to a thousand flies, that also, while they were hanging out and munching on those potatoes, decided to procreate a bunch of other little tiny microscopic flies that would be able to crawl in through the house to the smallest little crease. So I bring that out because the entire time we are misidentifying the issue. We were trying to come at it with an exterminator. No matter, no exterminator is going to be able to fix that problem until you find what the actual problem is. My second main point, and I know this message is kind of getting through here a little quick, but my second main point, our choices, desires, inclinations are not always in line with God's. And we see this as the story unfolds. What Israel gets is not what they think. You see, in their minds, God told them the kind of king that they're supposed to have. They don't want that king. No, they don't want that individual. They want someone they think in their mind fits the bill. 1 Samuel chapter 9, we see that Saul becomes the one that they want. Verses 1 and 2, there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Ibiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, from his shoulders upward, and he was taller than any of the people. And the Israel is like, that's the guy right there. We've got to have him as the king. He's handsome. 
He's wealthy from the upper class. He's big and strong. It epitomized, in their minds, this physical stature of him epitomized what they wanted in a king. People in the ancient Near East placed high value on the stature and appearance of the king. Because in their minds, they were the ones to lead in battle. They were the ones to intimidate the enemy. And this is, of course, similar, I think, in our own day. Maybe we don't necessarily want to have you know, politicians with their, the biggest muscular-wise, but we definitely want them to fit the bill, right? Okay? They have to come from maybe the right family. Where do they go to school? Right? Are they from the right party? Do they toe the line to that party? Are they in with the right interest group? Things like that. Essentially, do they fit the bill? But although all of these physical attributes was desirable to the Israelites, in reality, we know that Saul was rash and impatient. He was jealous. He was, number one, the worst of all, disobedient to God's law. One of the most important characteristics of a king, according to what God had outlined and what a king needed to be, was obedient to God. And in fact, because he didn't have the characteristics to be king, by the time he was about to die and the end of his reign, he was almost insane. Because he wasn't following God and because of the things that God brought upon him. In contrast to Saul, of course, was God's choice. You probably couldn't get any further as far as a choosing of a king during this time than who God decides to choose. 1 Samuel chapter 15, 28 and 29 says, So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should, rel- that he should relent. And so as the story goes on, we see that God pulls his choice of Saul, of course, to a new person, someone we come to know as King David. The youngest of seven brothers, just a small shepherd boy, not from the wealthy, not physically strong, not impressive in any way, shape, or form physically. If you were, some of you guys might have done this before, if you were in your uh, fantasy football, right? You know, you, people do that. They draft all the best players they can. They put them on, it's a game. They put them on a team. You probably wouldn't draft David on your fantasy football team if he was a football player. But First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Not only did Israel misidentify their problems, they also allowed their carnal nature to be what guided them in deciding what type of king they wanted the decisions that they would make. And we have to be careful because as Christians, we can't look at these stories and just look at them like, wow, I can't believe those crazy, unrighteous people would do those things. They're here for a reason, for us to learn from them 
Yes, we've been given God's Spirit, and that's the basis of a lot of this message is to not take for granted that spirit that we've been given. But we still have an old man that has a carnal nature that wants to come out, and this world loves for it to come out, and the enemy, Satan the devil, loves for it to come out and to get our minds off of the spiritual perceptions that we're to have. Another example that we read just last week of how God sometimes, he, he does the opposite of what the world thinks, right? We have, as human beings, these ideal individuals or who's supposed to be in certain positions, especially when it comes to religion. And we know at the day of Pentecost, we've read this before, Jesus himself is probably the best example of all where he's the least likely candidate in people's minds because what they expected the Savior to do and to be. But on the day of Pentecost, as we read last week, we know that that Spirit came and this miracle of tongues took place. All of these individuals from all different parts of the world, we see in Acts the second chapter, verse 7 through 8, says, Then they were all amazed and marveled. Not the disciples, not the apostles, but the people who had come there from all different parts of the known world, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Now, in, in, in just reading this, and you don't maybe do a little bit of background study, you might not get all of it. And that's not saying that you can't get the scriptures without doing all of these crazy historical studies, but it matters here because when they say, aren't these all men Galileans, that was part of their amazement. You see, these Galileans, in their mind, if you're living in this part of the world during this time, you look at them as maybe the backwoodsy people of the Palestine world. They're not the educated ones. They're maybe, you know, the ones that are over there and kind of crazy and they're really just, they just do manual labor. They don't have, you know, any education. And so that was what made them even more amazed was these men who were uneducated, they didn't have any background in linguistics or language or anything like that, were the ones speaking in their native tongue or they would hear them speak in their native tongue. And these Jews in Jerusalem and these Jews from all over the known world that knew of the reputation of these Galileans, which was just uneducated country folk, see this happening. And it made them realize this must have been truly a miracle of God. And the story goes is, is that if you were just living in the world, right, during this time, and God was going to perform a miracle, you probably thought to yourself, well, he's surely going to do it through the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, but in God fashion. As a paradigm we see all throughout the entirety of Scripture, we see that he chose to do it through the most unlikely candidates. I think there's a lesson that, in that. And that is when we become spirit-filled, when we learn of the thing that God has done through Christ... We all realize no matter what we are background-wise, no matter how wealthy we were or are, no matter what educational background we have, we're all lowly. 
We're all poor. We leave this world the same way as everyone else. Elon Musk, the, one of the richest men in the world, is going to leave this earth the same way that all other humans do. And a box six feet in the ground. And there's a lesson in this to not get held up in our perceptions in a carnal way. And we can apply this. Now we can apply this in a lot of ways to just realize that how low we were when Christ decided to save us. Not to think of ourselves special. Not to think of ourselves and look down on people and say, well, they don't, they don't do it like we do it. They must not be as blessed as we are. They can't be. They can't be. You know, when we have problems like this in our lives, maybe on a personal basis, but sometimes I think even as a church, not just I'm not, I'm not singling our church out, but just in the church of God history in general, right? Well, we can start thinking that, well, that church, do they really conform to the way we conform? You know, are they really you know, as blessed as we are? Keep our perceptions spiritual. Keep our perceptions spiritual. This was a short message today, but in conclusion, my hope is that we consider two things. One is that we, we must realize as we progress on our journey with God, we have to realize that sometimes we can, as human beings, be prone to misidentifying problems we face and thus come up with wrong solutions, specifically when it comes to our spiritual life. Secondly, I hope that we also realize that God's ways, perceptions, and choices are often in contrast to man's. God doesn't think like a man. He's not a man. He looks on the heart. Oftentimes, what humans despise, hold to low esteem, is what God cherishes. Brethren, we must allow God to nourish the spirit that he has given us. Nourish it. Don't take it for granted so we can continue to transform or be transformed in our fleshly perceptions, of course, into spiritual ones, that we always self-reflect on our heart because that is what God looks upon, not our flesh.